Welcome to the Westside Investors Network. Win your community of investing knowledge for growth. This is the Real Estate Professionals Investing Podcast for real estate professionals by real estate professionals. This show is focused on the next step in your career, investing. Thank you for listening. And please, if you like our content, rate us on your podcast provider. Just a quick disclaimer, the views and opinions expressed in this podcast are for educational purposes only and should not be construed as an offer to buy or sell any shares or securities, make or consider any investments or take any other action. And now, AJ and Chris Shepard. Hello, and welcome to the Westside Investors Network. This year, we're launching a new segment on the show, The Deal Deep Dive. These are mini episodes where our featured guests will share their unique stories on a specific deal they've participated in. We will go deep on all aspects of the deal, from finding it to making the offer, due diligence, and more. Do us a solid and smash that subscribe button, leave us a rating, and further your investing journey. Welcome back to another Deal Deep Dive. My name is Trent Werner. I have Alex Jarbo. I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. Yep. Alex is going to introduce himself, and he is a very special guest I'm excited to talk with today. Awesome. Thanks for having me on, man. Yeah. So, Alex, why don't you just kind of talk about how you got into real estate, how long you've been in real estate, and what you did if you did something previously? Yeah, so I originally actually started in the Marine Corps. So I served for four and a half years. And the last year of my enlistment, I just had decided that I didn't want to re-enlist. So I started looking into different things to invest in, stocks, crypto, maybe getting into M&A. I knew I wanted to like start my own business or something, but I didn't know what I wanted to get into. And real estate had really caught my eye, just the forced appreciation value add. You just had more control over it, right? So I originally had joined a flipping mentorship while I was still in the military. And this is back in 2000, like. 15. What I realized was the gentleman who had ran that flipping mentorship, all of his long-term wealth, even back then, was tied into short-term rentals. So I got him on a call. I was like, hey, man, like I like the whole flipping model and blah, 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 but I'm looking to grow some long-term wealth. He had helped me decide on a market to invest in, and he also showed me his numbers and just showed me the difference between like if it was a long-term compared to short-term rental, how crazy the difference in the two numbers were. So he helped me move here to Asheville, North Carolina, where I currently live. And literally the day I got out of the military, moved directly to here, got my broker's license. And I just started looking for a real estate and like some sort of real estate investment to get into initially. Awesome. Did you choose Asheville because of your mentor kind of recommending it or was it any connection with the military? Yeah, not at all. He helped me decide on what makes a good short-term rental market or like figure out what makes a good short-term rental market. And then from there, there was like four other markets to get into. And I chose this one just because I've grown up in big cities my whole life. I was stationed in DC. Prior to that, I lived in Detroit. And I wanted the feel of a city, but not necessarily like a massive city. And that's exactly what Asheville was. At the time I was engaged, now I'm married. I didn't want to move to just a completely, one, metro city, but two, like a tourist destination. And Asheville sort of in the middle between both of those. Awesome. Yeah. Let's dive into your deal that we're going to talk about today. Can yeah. you tell us where that deal is and yeah. how you found that deal? It's about six to eight months of looking for a real estate deal for myself as a short-term rental. And what I realized at that time, everything was either way out of my price range or it was in my price range, but it wouldn't have done well as a short-term rental. There was nothing necessarily unique about it. It would have done well as like a long-term rental, but again, there was nothing unique about it. So my very first real estate investment 
was a ground up development that was a short term rental and it was an A frame, an 800 square foot A frame. But yeah, I had found that one actually through a different real estate agent and I was licensed as well. But what I realized about that very first deal, and we own that deal to this day, but that very first real estate project, like just the power of like land, like how to deal with land, purchasing land, selling land, and the different structures and the different things you can get into with that. If you don't mind, I'm going to dive like pretty deep into that piece. So go for it. The, the very, so we looked at like 50 parcels, like even back in 2016. And we found this deal that I've talked to other students and some other friends who have, have gone the same path that I've gone down and I've helped them with this. So it wasn't just particular to this one deal or market or whatever. I've realized that like a lot of people actually do this. So we found four acres that was two, two acre parcels that were adjacent to each other. And it was listed, I think for like 48 or $50,000. And we were getting a loan, a residential second home loan that was a construction loan. And the lender would only land on one parcel. So what my lender recommended doing, my broker, what she recommended doing is essentially trying to get one parcel to appraise for the purchase price and essentially get the other one for essentially free at closing or for a dollar at closing. We wrote a separate contract out. So that land appraised for the purchase price, the two acres, and we were able to get that second parcel for a dollar, which then um, you were mentioning my YouTube channel, those two other acres, we're developing on those right now. We were able to take that land and use it as collateral for two other projects. So that was the first piece was we essentially made 50 grand at closing and we hadn't even broken ground yet. So that was step number one. Step number two was obviously finding the right GC to take on that project. He was a friend that I had known and he just got his GC license. He had worked with other GCs for like, I think 15 years. So he had experience. He had originally gotten his GC license to work on his family's house, like to build a house for his family. I sort of stepped in the middle there and he agreed to that. At that time, I could only afford like an 800 square foot A-frame that could sleep like four to six people. But yeah, we got the construction loan and then it was about nine months of development. It was a two-time closed loan for people who don't know what that is. Essentially, it was a residential loan, but essentially a bridge loan, which is a construction loan. Or you can do a cash out refinance, but a refinance into permanent financing. And then what I did was at the refinance, since it had appraised for way more than what we even built it for, I pulled some money out just to take care of the furnishings that was just tied back into the loan. You said the first loan that you got when you acquired the parcel was a construction loan, correct? Yeah. And I honestly don't recommend on the commercial side, you have to, you can find construction to perm loans relatively easy now, but a lot of times two-time closed loans are more common in the commercial world. At that time, that was the only person that would even say yes to me, like a lender. But yeah, it was a two-time closed loan, construction loan. And then you had to refinance into permanent financing, which sucked because your finances were tied up for the construction period, essentially, because you had to then re-qualify for another loan. What kind of capital does it take to get that loan? Is it like 90% loan to cost or how do the numbers work? on Yeah. That? So residential is a little bit more flexible than commercial if you can get it. Obviously, you're sort of capped out maybe at one or two loans at that. Commercial is loan to cost. That was loan to value, but it was, uh, I'll take that back. It was 10% down on loan to cost. But when it came to the refinance, we obviously had to go no money out of pocket. That was loan to value. So yeah, at that time it was 10%. It's difficult, especially with interest rates right now, it's difficult to find that. Yeah, it was 10% loan to cost. And then once we did the cash out refinance, I essentially went no money out of pocket for the furnishings. So these types of loan programs and deal structures, I would say are for more experienced investors, right? Whenever you're talking about ground up development, I own a decent amount of real estate and I still haven't done any development. 
So kudos for you for taking that on as your first deal. I know you talked a little bit about finding something in your budget initially for your first deal. I mean, how did you get to the point where you said, forget it, we're just going to go build something rather than maybe getting a fixer and rehabbing the whole thing? Talk a little bit about that. Yeah, and I can talk on both sides because we do both sides now where we'll purchase, but like we'll purchase if there's some land attached to the property where we can do future development on. That's one way to do it if you don't want to dive head first. I was comparing build costs, like replacement values to what we could actually build for. Obviously, it took like nine, 10 months to develop that project from start to finish. But the numbers just made sense to me. And I wasn't in like an absolute crazy rush. And honestly, I just wanted something unique. And there weren't like I said, it was an A-frame. There weren't any A-frames in my, at least I couldn't find any A-frames in my market at that time. It wasn't just a hunch, right? Like I've done my due diligence on it. I've had a general idea what it could make. And then on top of that, I went even further. I underwrote it as a long-term rental, which some markets you can still do. Like after COVID, it's a little bit harder to do that. But then my second exit was just selling the property. I mean, it's an 800 square foot property, open floor plan. Any couple would have been happy purchasing that property. My exit was built. I had a couple exits built in as well. Because like when I start talking about like Instagrammable properties or unique properties, sometimes I just go like, oh, I just had a feeling that it would do well. But when you're talking to real estate investors, you have to have like some sort of plan and your numbers have to be backed by something. You can't just go on a hunch, especially with taking on investor capital. Right. You mentioned that you used the other lot as collateral for a couple other deals. Are you still yeah. focusing in the same area on short-term rental construction or have you done? We finally broke ground on those. We actually got the loan on that right before COVID happened, like a month before COVID. So we sidelined that project for a little bit. Luckily, we barely had any interest costs like that were accruing maybe a couple hundred dollars a month. But in comparison to what we would have paid if we actually went through a building at that time. Right now, what I'm focused on is these larger projects of six to 12 cabins at the same time. That's the best use of my time. And it's also the best use of my GC's time. I'm staying in Western North Carolina in the mountains here, but I'm focused on some sort of theme. So it's like a cottage community, an Avering community, a chalet community, a log cabin community. And we get like anywhere between 15 to 20 acres. And then we're just developing those six to 12 cabins, depending on what the investor is comfortable with. We just made a big jump between the two. (laughs) In Western North Carolina, what are the minimums for like, is it two acre minimums or how many cabins can you get or ADUs or smaller properties can you yeah, get? I love that. That ADU strategy, man, is, is super powerful. It's all depending on the zoning code. If you're an open use land, you can almost do whatever you want outside of, in our county, we have to get something called a short-term rental complex permit. But outside of that, I've never had an issue with getting them. Our county is pretty good. You just have to get in front of the board and wait for like a board decision. But outside of that, We've done, like, if we're doing six cabins and the way we avoid like subdivision rules is in our county, you can take a parcel, subdivide it into three lots, and you don't have to go for subdivision, platting, or anything. If you go over three, you have to, but three lots, and then we do a primary and an accessory dwelling unit to each one of those. And then that way we can get six units, and it's essentially just one permit and a building permit for each one of them. And the financing, we get commercial financing on all of it now. We started using like a hospitality broker that's familiar with hospitality lending, but we're getting on these larger ones, man. And for people who are interested in this, it's honestly the best route to go right now with the higher interest rates is getting like SBA financing, like SBA will loan on stuff like this. So that's what we're doing for the larger projects. And now here's a word from our sponsor. Get things done while you're on the move. Learn more about working with a virtual assistant through offsite professionals. It's a great way to get all the things done that you need to get done. Have freedom in your time and streamline your life 
by automating your business. Stop spending time on the tasks that you can delegate and start spending more time on your superpower. Call us today at 503-446-3177 or visit our website at offsiteprofessionals.com. How do the terms differ on an SBA financing versus a traditional, yeah. like your first loan to cost ground up yeah. build? The LTCs are pretty competitive. Obviously, you're going to be paying, even with higher interest rates right now, you're still going to be paying a little bit of a higher interest rate with SBA loans because they're government backed. But you're looking at about an 85% loan to cost, but it's very flexible what you can do with some of the turns with cross collateralization and everything like that. It's a very powerful strategy. It took me a couple of years to even find the right person to do something like that. Anytime I'll talk about like hotel financing, resort financing, it was like, you're too young for that, or the balance sheet doesn't work out, or we just don't do that or something like that. They're pretty competitive. If you can make the deal work with the higher interest rates, I would go for it. Like I'm a writer for Bigger Pockets for their short-term rental blog. And I've been preaching that since June about like, stop like pushing off real estate investing just because interest rates are higher. There's good deals out there. There's a lot of good deals out there. And if you can still underwrite and get a property to cash flow during these higher interest rates, I mean, you're going to be golden when the interest rates finally drop and you can refinance out of that deal. So talk about that a little bit. When it comes to obtaining SBA financing, what is the refinance look like? You're not refinancing into primary lending or single family lending. You're obviously going into commercial still. How does that refi work? Yeah. So I think it's a five-year refinance essentially with some sort of penalty if you refinance too early or something like that. But they're 25-year AMs, which is phenomenal. I mean, better than some of the commercial loans I've gotten. But outside of that, I mean, they're just government-backed loans. So it's like the financing is relatively pretty similar to like a normal commercial loan. A 25-year AM is awesome. The rates are going to be a little bit higher. So right now, you're probably looking at like seven and a half, eight, which is very high, especially for investors who are just used to the 4%, like three and a half percent six months ago. But with that comes lower prices with some like have been sitting like we just got seven cabins under contract on a deal that was sitting for six months. So it's like we got a pretty good deal on that compared to what the list price was. Six months ago, we wouldn't even thought about that, like offering what we offered below list price. So it makes sense with where we're at currently. When you say seven cabins, do you mean already built? You don't have to build them? Yeah, seven already built. And then it comes with 10 acres. So we're looking to do like another six to 10 on it once we do the transition and stabilize it to what our pro forma says. Okay. What is a typical cabin rent out for? And what's the occupancy on that kind of thing? Yeah. So if we want to go back to the very first one, the A-frame, yeah. I don't like to use COVID as a measuring stick because I feel like our business did really well during COVID because all of our properties are in a more rural setting. So they're not in the city. They're about 15, 25 minutes away from the city. Again, I did that just because I couldn't afford the land closer to the city. So I just went further out. But COVID pushed people out of the metro markets into more rural settings. So I don't like to use COVID as a measuring stick because we were at like 95, 98% occupancy for the last two, three years, at least the last two years. And then we operated that property before COVID. I like to stabilize the property at 80%. The goal obviously is 90%, but stabilized at 80%. I like to underwrite it at 65% and then a break even occupancy about 35 to 45%. Prior to COVID, it was closer to 30. Now it's like closer to 45. But 45 is still good for like an expense ratio and stuff. But that very first deal last year, it grossed, again, 800 square foot cabin, 250 grand to build and furnish. 800 square foot cabin grossed 82,000 last year and netted after debt service 46,000. Wow. On yeah. one property. 
on one property. Yeah, forty six grand. And I don't have any partners in that. This is my wife and I own that one. So, do you own all of them? Just your wife and I, or <laughs> your wife and yourself? <laughs> no. So we only have three that we're one hundred percent owners in, and the other ones that we brought partners in were some sort of equity partner. So I have silent investors, just four JV deals, and I'm working with a couple funds as well. But I take some sort of ownership in the deal, and then they're passive. They operate, developer and operator after they're because we manage them as well. So after they're developed, do you delegate the work in terms of cleaning and scheduling, or do you manage the? Yeah, yeah. So like, I feel like that's where a lot of the money is to be made right now. Outside of the, so I mean, we're creating a pretty good amount of equity in the development that we create, like developing or the properties we're developing. But the management piece is, is like, I mean, I'm all about automation. I'm all about like using technology before I have to hire people. So the four biggest pieces to that is automating the messaging, which we use a tool called Hospitable. That automates about 70 to 80% of the messaging, all like the pre-check-in, post-checkout, checkup messages. We use a dynamic pricing tool to adjust pricing based off of what the market is during that day. So our pricing is automatically updated every single night. And then we use virtual assistants out of the Philippines that have worked for both Marriott and Airbnb to handle the rest of our messaging and the overall management of our property. And then a phenomenal cleaning crew that's not in-house. It's a cleaning company that handles over 100 properties that they turn almost every single day or every single week. That cleaning crew handles my inventory, anything that goes wrong in the property. They send my VA pictures and stuff like that. So those are the four big pieces in managing the short-term rental business. It's pretty hands-off after that. So I'd love to know your thoughts on this question because yeah. you've been in short-term rentals for a number of years now. I've never been in short-term rentals. I had a conversation with a buddy of mine the other day. I thought made a good point, but maybe you can yeah, uh, let's do it, man. this. So his idea was, well, if we're in a recession, right? Whether that's air quotes or an actual recession, start traveling yeah. less. Is the short-term rentals going to be the ones that get hit? And if they do, I guess, how do you combat that? If people are traveling less, whether it's costs or people get laid off, that kind of thing. Yeah, absolutely, man. No, I mean, that's going to happen. The first thing that I've said to that was usually people don't stop traveling in a recession or a correction or whatever you want to call this. Instead of taking that week trip overseas to Europe, take a small extended weekend vacation somewhere close. So when I'm talking to people about or when I'm talking to students about where they should be investing at. I don't recommend investing in metro markets. Again, I don't recommend moving the way I did either. I was coming out of the military and I was open to doing that. You can start in your own backyard. And when I say your own backyard, in your little bubble of a market, whether it be an hour or two away, what I always like to say is you want to think of a city or an area that people like to vacation in your area. They take extended weekend vacations to. The two extremes I like to use is like the examples is New York City. People like to travel to upstate New York all the time for the weekend. I got a lot of friends in San Diego. They like to travel to Big Bear Lake to stay like a weekend. So it's the same idea. And to answer your original question, people don't stop traveling to those little pockets during recessions. And then on top of that, the way we develop our properties with the unique Instagrammable properties, when it comes time to book that property, people are going to be looking for that unique experience on top of the market that they're going to. If you look at our occupancies right now, between our luxury properties that can sleep 14 people or our A-frame that can sleep six people, like we're at, luxury properties tend to be booked out a little less. That's about like a 75, 80% occupancy and our A-frames are 95% plus right now. There's no slowing down. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. So, And there's other strategies to help combat that. 
I'm seeing a lot of people play around with like influencer marketing. If you have a unique property, like bringing in an influencer with some sort of following on YouTube or Instagram to help promote your property. We can talk about direct bookings, like building out your own website and marketing to that as well. There's a lot of different strategies. What I always said is your property shouldn't exclusively live on Airbnb and VRBO. Airbnb and VRBO should just be looked at as a marketing channel for your property or for your business, not even your property. What other types of marketing do you guys use? So so my favorite thing, man, it's a company called StayFi. When you order the service, you get a little disc that plugs into the back of your router. And what that disc does is you can create a landing page for your internet. So someone has to enter in their email address before they get access to the internet. It's like when you go to Starbucks or the airport, you have to do the same thing. We've never had an issue with thousand plus people we've hosted this year. So they come off of Airbnb, VRBO, they stay in our property, we get their email address, and then we remarket to them. And you can either remarket to them if you don't have your own website directly back to the Airbnb or VRBO link, or if you've built out your own website, you can then directly market to your own website where you're outside of the Airbnb VRBO ecosystem. I've written a Bigger Pockets article on that specific topic. I got a lot of hate saying that that's against Airbnb's rules or anything. From what I've seen, it's not. It's illegal or you can't do it if you're trying to take them directly off the platform when they're trying to book with you. There's nothing wrong with them staying on your platform or staying with you through your platform after they stay with you. And I don't know if you've tracked this data, but what's the percentage of people that return visit or visit another one of your properties? Yeah, I'll have to check, man, because every single one is different. Right now, we're building out the direct booking site and we're just pushing people back to the Airbnb like listing just the top of mind. We only push out like six emails a year, seven emails a year. They're just seasonal emails anticipating the season that's come, like a holiday or season that's coming up in a couple months. I know before the update, Airbnb and VRBO, or at least Airbnb would allow you to see who's booked with you. I don't think that you can do that anymore, which is weird. Have you ever, or I guess, is it maybe not even plan B, but is a plan C ever to turn a short-term rental into a long-term rental? Yeah, there's different steps. So that's what I said. The very first one was I underwrote it as a long-term rental. And then instead of even going to long-term rental, you can go to midterm rental. I've personally never done it, but I've heard of a lot of people. There's sites out there where you can bring in tenants for like corporate tenants or maybe traveling nurses for like 30 days plus. You can actually skirt a lot of short-term rental laws in your city or your county by doing the midterm stays because a lot of short-term rentals are 28 day or 30 days and under. If you're booking for a month at a time or two months at a time, you're skirting all the short-term rental laws. So you can go down to midterm to see if that works, then long-term. With development, it's a little harder to underwrite it as a long-term rental right now, just with how high it's getting better, but the materials and labor costs are still pretty high right now. But yeah, you can do that right now. We just go immediately to exit. We haven't done it yet, but the exit plan is to sell the property if it doesn't rent out for any reason. And we're developing anywhere between like 500 to 1600 square foot cabins and houses. And I mean, there's always going to be a market for those, like for people who just want to live in them full time. Right, right. What are your plans going for? I know we talked a little bit about the current project. I mean, do you see yourself sticking in short term? Do you ever think you're going to get in the long term? What's your plan going forward? Not necessarily short term, man, but I would love to do some boutique hotels and do some of these larger projects of like, anywhere between like 20 to 60 units that are just encased in a building that there's some sort of theme on the inside of the property. That's probably my next step. And then I'm going to continue with my cabin developments just in different markets, like doing these six to 12 cabin communities. It's anywhere between two and a half million to five million per project. If I do two, like three, four, five of those a year, I'm happy. Did you say you're going to explore other areas, other markets? 
Yeah, I mean, to do that with how niche, like the specific thing that I do with development into management, it would be partnering. The way passive investors partner with me would be, I would be partnering with them and essentially maybe maybe acting as like just on their board of directors or just some sort of coaching or something like that. But yeah, I do want to not step away from this market because this market's phenomenal, but do venture out into different stuff like with similar market features to what I'm currently in, but just in obviously just throughout the country or I mean, throughout the world, because there's some really cool stuff happening in like overseas and stuff as well. Of course. Alex, is there anything else you want to tell the people today? No, I mean, you had mentioned my YouTube channel. If anyone has any questions about anything or we're starting to document everything that we do on our YouTube channel, that YouTube channel is Alex Builds. And then if you guys want to connect with me, I'm on LinkedIn as well. Do you have an Instagram? Uh, yeah. Uh, so my Instagram is Magic Boy Jarbo. I was a magician prior to the military, so I actually never changed it. But Magic Boy Jarbo is, is my Instagram. You guys can DM me there. Awesome. Alex, yeah. I appreciate your time today. Thank you so much for sharing about short-term rentals. And I can't wait to get this episode going. Awesome. Thanks for having me on, man. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Real Estate Professionals Investing Podcast on Win your community of investing knowledge for growth. We hope that this episode has increased your knowledge and added value to your path to freedom. If you would, please take a second to rate us so that we can get more great investors to interview. If you or someone that you know wants to be on, please visit westsideinvestors.com and fill out our form to be on the show. Thank you again and enjoy your day.